Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we continue our series in the book of Revelation. The series is entitled, Revitalize. Pray like your life depends on it. Revitalize. Pray like your life depends on it. And the series really is is intended to encourage us to pray, to give us the grace to pray. And we have that grace to pray when we see the Lord Jesus Christ. And church, we need to see the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We need a vision of the risen Lord Jesus. The Lord knows what his church is going through. And he writes these letters to these seven churches. And and he starts each letter by saying, I know your situation. I know your tribulation. I know where you live. And he's saying that to us this morning, church. He knows that we're tired. We're a little disoriented. Some of you have just gotten back, I believe. One family just got back last night from Tennessee. Others of you drove 28, 30 hours. Some of us just stayed home, didn't have AC for a while. We're not going to work like we normally do. Our rhythms are interrupted. We're in a church building that we're not used to. Although it's beautiful, this isn't where we normally have church. And it's not normally at 5 p.m. So we're disoriented. He knows that. The Lord Jesus knows that. And I believe this word this morning is intended to encourage your church. He's going to bring encouragement as he reveals himself to us. See, one of the questions I want to ask you this morning to prepare you for this message is, what do you fear? Because Jesus is going to speak to our fears this morning. And it's interesting. Our fears oftentimes reveal our cravings. Let me explain. If I fear rejection, that's one way of looking at it. It's a legitimate fear. But take that fear and turn it on its head. What fuels that fear of rejection oftentimes is a craving for And and that craving can drive me in ways that are very destructive. You may fear failure. And it's good to examine that fear of failure. But turn the fear of failure on its head. And what oftentimes is driving that fear of failure is a craving for success. What the Bible would call an idol. An idol. Where I take something, success, being accepted, and I put it above God. And it becomes my functional God. And so he's going to speak to our fears here. He's actually going to speak to some idolatrous cravings here to these two churches we're going to examine. But church, I want you to know he's speaking to us this morning. He knows where you're at. He knows where you work. He knows that your yard is a mess. He knows that your roof is leaking. I'm not speaking, it's about my situation right now. He knows your loss. He knows. And he's going to reveal himself to you through this text. So let's read it together. Could you put the map up? Just to remind you again, he is, he is writing this, these, these two letters to the churches in Smyrna and Pergamum. So you can see them up there. On the screen, modern-day Turkey is what you're looking at, okay? Asia Minor. So let's read together his letter. Jesus' revelation to his church in Smyrna and Pergamum and Miami Lakes. All right, so Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 17. This message is entitled, Faithful. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write... 
the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his church. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one that no one knows except the one who receives it. This passage is written to give us vision, to give us light, to give us understanding, and it's written to blind and harden the hearts of those who do not believe. I want to focus in for a moment on this phrase that you find in verse 7. Look at it with me. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You find it again in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 29 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 6, the same phrase. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 13 of chapter 3 and verse 22. Seven letters, seven times he says the very same thing. Why? Because these words are meant to awaken, to arrest the drift away from God, to open the ears of God's people, God's believers. And at the same time, they're meant to harden and to, and to cause the ears to be stopped of unbelievers. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's an incredible message here. It's a powerful message for us. God knows us and he's going to encourage us. And he's saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what I'm saying to the church. Let me explain this to you. Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, is using this phrase 
in very much the same way that Isaiah used it some 500 years earlier in Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 on the screen. And he said, go, say to this people, so God is speaking. And he said to Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So here's my appeal to you, dear church. We all drift a little bit. At times like this, we get a little tired. At times like this, we can compromise a little bit. We can give in to our fears. And this word is a word of encouragement meant to give you life as a true believer. Jesus loves us and he's giving us this life, this word that's going to uplift us and going to arrest our drift and going to encourage us and going to allay our fears and our discouragement and our loss. But at the same time, this word is a word of judgment against the unbeliever. It's exactly how Jesus used it in Luke 8, 8, just some three years earlier, or excuse me, some 40 years earlier when Jesus was on earth in Luke 8, 8, Jesus said the following on the screen, and some, talking about the seeds, fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, now he's going to use Isaiah's phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus used this phrase, and he's using this phrase today to us in the same way that Isaiah used it, to open the eyes, to open our eyes, to wake us up, and to give us hearts of faith. He wants wants us to be aware that there are fears that we're maybe giving into, that we're having unbelief about, and he's wanting to alert us of the idols that underlay those fears so that we might experience his blessing. Greg Beale, in his commentary, says it this way. Though the seven churches have not yet capitulated, given in, to the idols of the culture, some are in the process of doing so, while others are facing temptation. Are you tempted to give in to the idols of our culture? Are you tempted to give in to the idols of your own heart, the fears that would drive you? This word is meant to bless you. It's meant to bless me as his true believers. Therefore, the hearing formula, what we just studied, is suitably addressed to the churches in the midst of this idolatrous atmosphere in order to warn them not to become identified with idols. But with this warning comes a blessing. You're going to see in these seven letters, really, Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only churches that he doesn't say repent of something. Only Smyrna, the one we just read here, and Philadelphia, we're going to preach about them next week. The other five, he comes to commend them, and because they're his children, he comes to correct them. The father disciplines the children that he loves. And so he comes with this warning. It's a serious warning. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But with the warning comes blessing, and here's the blessing. Here's the main point of this text, I believe. The living Lord Jesus calms our fears and strengthens our faith. The living Lord Jesus calms our fears and strengthens our faith to fully follow him. To follow him fully. The living Lord Jesus calms our fears and strengthens our faith to follow him fully. Point one, Jesus calms our fears. He introduces himself how in this passage. Look at it. Chapter two, verse eight. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write... The words of the first and the last 
who died and came to life. You remember? These are the introductions. These are the names for Christ that we studied several weeks ago in chapter 1. So he chooses this name for himself. He chooses that to reveal himself to you and me today as the first and the last, the one who died and is alive. I'm so grateful for that. Because guys, the reason I'm wearing this tie is because I just came from a funeral where I stood at a grave for my friend, Larry Mizrock. I loved Larry. He was a gator. He would have loved the game yesterday. You may not follow football, but the gators won a miraculous session. Larry would have been My friend Larry is no longer with us. So I'm tempted to fear death. And if I'm not tempted to fear death, I'm tempted to just give in and just grieve over to the place of despondency. Some of you may have lost things recently. You may have lost friends. You may have, uh, there's loss all over there. The death may not be physical. The death may be the death of a dream, the death of a hope, the death of a friendship, whatever it might be. And so we're, we're just tempted to fear it. It's like I was driving here. And I actually said to the Lord, Lord, I don't know what to do this afternoon. They're throwing dirt on Larry's coffin. It was a Jewish funeral. And I didn't know this, but they take the shovel and they turn the shovel upside down and the first shovel pull is from the backside of the shovel, the wrong way, indicating, the rabbi said, indicating that we don't like this. Well, of course we don't like this. Death is unnatural. Death should make us grieve. We should hate death, but we shouldn't fear it. And then you, you turn the shell over and everybody who wants to throws dirt. There's, I've never been at a funeral like that. You're right? Most funerals, you put the flower on the coffin and everybody leaves before they lower it. I mean, they lower the coffin and you're hearing dirt hit this coffin. And you see the enemy crying. And you're looking at these people and you're just going, I hate this. I, I fear this somewhat. I think it was R.C. Sproul who says, I don't fear death. It's the dying I'm afraid of. If you know what I mean. The pain and suffering. But, but we all have we, have, we want security. We want, we want eternal life. And, and we look at death and we just, it just disorients us. And Jesus comes and he reveals himself to you and me. Read it with me again. Verse 8. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Why did he die, church? He died to pay for the sins of his elect. He died to shed his blood, if you're a Christian friend, for you. That makes it even more significant. I know your pain, some of you. But the one who died for your sins has come to life. He lives. Jesus lives. And so will I. Because I have faith in Him. So He calms my fears. And then look what He says to the Smyrnans. He says, listen, I'm commending you, dear children and church of Smyrna, because you have stood fast for the testimony of Him, Jesus Christ. And he tells them, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know that you're experiencing this at the hands of these Jews. These Jews that were slandering them. Let me explain that to you for a moment. In the Roman kingdom, 
Everyone had to worship Caesar as God, but the Jews had a special dispensation. They, they almost were like, a, like in Cuba, like a registered church or in a communist country. Sometimes if you're a registered state church, they kind of leave you alone a little bit. But the Christians were not. And back then in the first century, Christians were really considered Jews that had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. It was a very Jewish thing, Christianity, believe it or not. And so what some Jews were doing in these cities, Smyrna, probably Pergamum, these synagogues of Satan, they were going to the authorities and they were telling them, listen, these are the people who are not worshiping Caesar. They're certainly not Jews. We don't claim them. And you know who they're worshiping? You know who they're saying is Lord? The convicted, crucified criminal, Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, that that you guys crucified 30, 40, whenever years ago, whenever you think this was written, probably in the late first century. Oh yeah, they're worshiping that guy. So what would happen to the Jews? They get a knock on the door. Midnight, please leave your residence. We're, we're, we're taking all of your possessions. We're going to throw you in jail. In fact, in fact, Jesus tells them, I tell you, you, some of you are going to be sent to prison. I mean, you, do you remember what it was like watching the hurricane coverage? South Floridians, man, we get this now. Who else gets to harbor these horrible feelings of your life ending in five days? Right? It's time you have died. Then, of course, they show you pictures of Hurricane Harvey. You know, and then you, if you grew up down here, you remember Wilma. And, you know, and then you just, for five days, you're being told you're going to die. And you have to take it seriously. I'm not mocking it. Yes, I am, aren't I? Okay, I need to stop doing that. I know what you're thinking, because Maria's coming, right? All right, let's let me talk about that. But how would you feel if, you, if I told you in five days something really bad is going to happen to you? It's exactly what Jesus is telling you. Soon, Satan is going to imprison some of you. But then what does he say to them? What does he say to them? He says, do not fear. Do you see that? Look at verse 10. Do not fear. Do not fear. Even though these Jews are slandering you, and I tell you that slander is going to work because you're going to be in prison because they're going to claim that you are committing blasphemy. Back then, blasphemy was if you worshipped anybody other than Caesar over Caesar. And of course, the Christians could not say Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord, like some people today try to in America, Christianity. You said, Jesus is Lord, period. And they said, okay, he can be Lord, but Caesar has to be Lord too. And they said, no. They said, okay, throw him the lines. And and Jesus said, you're going to be in prison for this. But then he said, do not fear. What are your fears? What what are the things that mull around in your head that are coming at you? The Lord Jesus Christ knows your tribulation. He knows your situation. And he is saying to you what he says to the church in Smyrna. And he says this, be faithful even unto death. Be faithful even unto death. And here's the promise. And I will give you the crown of life. Look at that with me. I will give you the crown of life at the end of verse 10. Then in verse 11, he says, he who has ears uh, to hear what the Spirit says to the church, let him hear. And then at the end of verse 11, he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is what he's saying. He's saying, don't crave anything else above me, even safety, 
even, in a sense, craving life, but life just for life's sake, not life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust me, suffer well now, and you will receive the crown of life. That crown of life represents what Adam and Eve lost in the Garden of Eden through their rebellion, that Jesus won on the cross and restored that ruling and reigning underneath God's authority. And the second death, the second death speaks of the judgment to come when Jesus returns a second time. That's the second death. You don't fear the second death. You have been washed clean by my blood. You are set free. You are now clean. And you don't have to fear the second death. So serve me. So Jesus calms our fears and we can say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And the Lord does. Point two, Jesus strengthens our faith. Look at verse 12. Jesus knew where the church in Pergamum was. We read here. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Wow. Again, you've got these Jews that that have these synagogues that have rejected Jesus and they are slandering the Christians. They are persecuting the Christians. And it's a difficult, difficult place. Pergamum, this place where Satan's throne is, was known to be the seat of the center of the Roman government and its Caesar worship. So when he says here in verse 12, that it is the, in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Literally, Pergamum is the place where those who worship Caesar hold their power. It was also a place to be um, where the worship of the fertility gods of the pagans of Asia Minor had their headquarters. It was a tough place to be a Christian and to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. But Jesus knew their tribulation. He knew their situation. And he says, I'm coming to you with this two-edged sword. And it represents Jesus' authority to judge all those who oppose him. Whether those are pagan governments that misuse their power to persecute Christians. Or apostates in the church. Jesus strengthened the church in Pergamum's faith by reminding them that he ruled the Roman authorities that were persecuting them. And and Jesus reminds us of the same thing today. Look, I don't know if you're watching the news like I am. I don't know if it bothers you that you read that in the city of Miami-Dade there may be an ordinance passed that would prevent any pastor from talking about the change that can occur for someone who is involved in homosexuality, that if that is in counsel, that's actually going to maybe be illegal soon. I don't know if you, I don't know if you know whether in, in our country, in some places, if you say the name of Jesus, uh, you can be detained. It, it, it's going to come down to the place soon where if we are Christians and walk according to God's word and will, we may find ourselves in trouble. At a minimum, we may find that we lose our jobs or the opportunity for promotion. So when we come to that place, what we need to see is the revealed Lord Jesus saying to us, 
Do we trust him in that? Do we trust him in that? And he's speaking to those within the church. So that's now opposition from outside the church. And he's speaking to those within the church. He's saying, I'm an authority over them as well who would teach error in the church. I want you to to take a look here at verse 14. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. So now remember Smyrna, nothing against them. He just said, stand fast. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to receive the crown of life. You're going, to, you're going to not be afraid of the second death. But now in Pergamum, he commends them for standing fast, even in light of one of their members being murdered because of the gospel. But now in verse 14, look what he says. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice spiritual uh, sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So who is this Balaam? Well, let me see if I can explain to you who Balaam is. Balaam was a pagan prophet, kind of like a seer, who was being paid by Balak, who was the king to try to speak curses against Israel. And God would not allow that to happen. Every time Balaam would try to curse Israel, God would bless Israel. He actually used a donkey to speak to Balaam, if you're familiar with that story. But Balaam, Balaam really wreaked havoc on the people of God. Because what Balaam was able to do, Balaam was able to get the king of Balak to cause the sons of Israel to compromise. And it was around the issue of marriage, intermarriage with those Gentile tribes around Israel and cause them to move toward idolatry to worship the idols of these nations. And we see this in Numbers 31, 16 on the screen. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So now now we understand who Balaam is. Balaam is someone who is teaching something in the church. In our our situation, it's the Nicolaitans. That is fostering idolatry. Going after those idols in our hearts. And that it was marked by sexual immorality. And basically what Jesus is saying to the church is don't tolerate these false teachers. Because I'm the one with this two-edged sword. If you remember in chapter 1, Jesus had this two-edged sword in his mouth. And the two-edged sword represents his power to judge. It represents his discernment of our hearts. One of the things that was happening in Pergamum is because it was the seed of the fertility gods, they would have these feasts. And during these feasts, everybody would come, all the merchants. So if you're a newly converted uh, cobbler, you're making shoes, or, or you're working with iron in Pergamum, and you've been saved, the Lord Jesus Christ has shown you the gospel, and now they had this feast to, to the goddess of fertility in Pergamum. And you go to this feast of the goddess of fertility, a couple of things are going to be happening here. Number one, you remember what you used to do at that feast. What some of us used to do. It involves severe immorality, usually drunkenness. It could have involved whatever. Okay, maybe some, some worship, maybe some temple prostitution. Bad stuff. But now you're not going there 
because you're a Christian. So now people aren't going to shop at your business because the word is out. You're one of those Christians. And then you've got the Jews from the synagogue of Satan who are telling on you to the Roman authorities. So now you've got all kinds of pressure on you. I don't know if you get that. It's difficult. And so the temptation is to let some people slide to do those things because it's kind of okay. But it's not okay. It's not okay because Jesus comes to the church and says, I love you, you're my people. You're beginning to drift like Israel drifted when Balaam uh, attempted them to intermarry and to be sexually immoral with the people around them. And this is happening in my church. And I am, am now calling you. My word is calling you and giving you strength. Because it is this two-edged sword on the screen, Hebrews 4, 11 to 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall. By the same sort of disobedience, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here's what the Lord wants to say to you. He knows where you live. You're his. He loves you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. He loves you, Jesus. He's here to bless you, but his sword is going to discern what you really live for. What do you fear? What do you crave? And he's going to give you the strength. He's going to strengthen your faith so that you don't go to the pagan parties. You don't go to the pagan parties. You don't have to eat that food because you're eating of the Word of God. You're eating of Jesus. How can I say that? Well, if you look further on here in verse uh, 16, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth, against those Nicolaitans. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Oh, that's a good one, man. Stay with me. I'm a Christian. I need to eat. I need to work. I need to provide for my family. I need to pay some debt off. But but there's a t- I'm in the, the, the seat of the throne of Satan. And Jesus says, don't go to the pagan feasts and eat the dirty food out of the dumpster. Because I have got a divine bank set up for you. The, the, the supper of the Lamb, the hidden manna, the, the food that never ends, the food that satisfies. I've got for you some real food. Look up on the screen. Jesus, John wrote about this in John chapter 6, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And the same Jesus is saying it to the church in Pergamum and to the church in Miami Lake. Listen, I know you're tempted. I know you're hungry. There's a pagan feast with a lot of stuff going on there. And some may say, ah, it doesn't really matter. But don't go for that. I've got a better meal for you. For the bread of God, verse 33, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Of course, there's bread that never runs out. I I went to have breakfast the other day at Casavan in horrors of horror. They ran out of Cuban bread for my breakfast. 
It's a joke, but, but right? You gotta live by bread. You need bread to eat. Jesus says, I'm the bread that never runs out. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What he's saying to Pergamum, what he's saying to Smyrna, what he's saying to Miami Lakes, what he's saying to Alpino is, listen, I'll calm your fears. I'll change your heart. I'll reveal your idols with that sword from my, the sword of the spirit, the two-edged sword, judging the thoughts and intentions of your hearts, or you can understand what's really driving me, and then I start purifying you. So you you don't have to go to those pagan feasts. We refuse to eat at the pagan feasts around us because we have the promise of eating at Christ's feast. But I need to be reminded of that when my neighbor's got the music pounding behind me and it's tempting to go downstairs and go over there. That's what he's doing here for them and for us. And finally, what does Jesus promise them there in Pergamum? I love this. We're back to verse 17. B. So he's going to give them some of the hidden manna. We know that's Christ and what Christ gives us. I will give him a white stone and with a new name written on the stone. What in the world is going on here? What is this white stone? Well, in the first century world, a white stone often represented acquittal from guilt. You can imagine If you're handed a black stone, guilty. If you're handed a white stone, not guilty. So this white stone is acquittal from the guilt of our sins before a holy God because of the blood of Jesus. But it's also, it's also acquittal from the guilt and shame that the society puts on us because we won't go to their pagan feasts. He said, I'm going to give you a white stone. And on that white stone... I'm going to put a new name. And this new name, once again, points to the final supper of the Lamb that His people will enjoy. It speaks of intimate fellowship with God Himself, God the Father. We, I'm going to give you my name, is what Jesus is saying. You're Christians. My identity is in Christ. And even the name of the city of God, which comes down from heaven. We're going to study that next week. Here's the appeal, church. Here's the appeal. To know and have God's name is to know and to have God as our God. And we as his people. It is the ultimate identification for us, dear fellow Christian. It means he has accepted us and he's called us out and he will keep us. Is this your identity today? This is true worship of God. If not, then repent and believe. Because this word, he who has an ear, let him hear. If you, if you are not in Christ, it will simply harden and cause your hearing to be dull. Oh, I pray that not be you. And if your identity is in Christ, then stop dining at the world's table and continue dining at the Lord's table with full faith and joy in your heart in this hidden manna in this provision of life itself for our living Lord Jesus Christ calms our fears and strengthens our faith to follow Him fully. Let us pray. Worship team, would you please join us? Father, I pray that you would give us much grace this morning and this evening. 
I pray, Lord, for those of us who have fears. Lord, we are often consumed by cravings that just become fears. Lord, we're we're often um, confronted with a culture that is in open opposition to Christianity. Lord, would you keep us from becoming bitter and angry and reactionary? Would you give us faith to trust you? That you are the Lord. You're the first and the last. This is the picture of the sovereign Lord over history. You're the one who died for our sins and who is now alive. You've defeated death. We need no longer fear it. Lord God, I pray that you would comfort Emmy this morning. I pray that you would comfort um, those who have experienced significant loss this evening. Lord, please have mercy on them. Lord, let them hear you whisper, I rose from the dead. I will comfort you in your loss. And Lord Jesus, you are the one with this two-edged sword. Lord, come discern my heart. Discern what makes me tick. Discern what I really live for, Lord. Lord, show me my, my functional God at times. And I just want to say, I'm so sorry, Lord. I repent. Your word is intended to bless me and give me this beautiful repentance because you love me and you have for me the stone, the stone of acquittal. It's got a name on it. It is the name of God that you give me. You adopt me. You give me your name. I was an orphan. I had no name and you gave me your name. Oh, thank you, Lord. The suffering is hard. The fears are real. But let me see that stone with your name on it that's mine now. Now, because I earned it because you gave it to me. Oh, Lord, let us sing together. Why this fear? Why this fear? For we've been redeemed by the one who is drawn near. Let us stand and let us sing in response. Now, why this fear?